All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hey guys, before we get into it, I actually wanted to just issue a a quick correction. So during last week's episodes, when we were talking about uh, research and price predictions, I think we got something wrong. So we'll just put our hands up and say that uh, we talked about VanEck having an ETH price prediction of 118K. It was a much more modest 11.8K, which makes sense. The folks at VanEck put out a very thoughtful uh, research. They've been in the space for a long time. Great actors. So just want to say, sorry about the confusion there. We'll actually link the research in the show notes. It's really good. So highly recommend you go read that and check it out. And sorry again to Vanek for the confusion there. So, all right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got Michael's one and two, hold down the fort. Michael, you're in uh, you're in Denver right now, man, for, for a wedding. That is true, yes. I'm in Denver, got a different backdrop. Uh, excited for uh, for what's coming up in a couple of days here in Austin and uh, get, to, get to see you in person again. Me too, man, me too. I'm actually excited for what's coming up right now because – you know, just having the two of us on podcasts, uh, usually we don't, you know, reveal ratings and specific numbers, but the the time you and I held down the fort a couple of weeks ago, that's the highest ever viewed roundup. So I take away from that what you will. I mean, the numbers, they kind of speak for themselves, I think. You know, the powers that be decided to drop the dead weight and uh, stick with what's working. And I'm I'm just happy that they made that decision. It was really self-sacrifice is what it was, just for the good of the show, I think, so... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> boy went out for uh, for Vance and Yano this morning. But we'll, we'll, all the boys will be together, and we might even be able to string together a, a live episode in uh, Permissionless, which would be a ton of fun. That'd be great. I hope we I hope we can make that happen. That'd be great. Me too. Me too. All right, let's get into it because it's been a pretty big week for stories, and we're going to run the gamut on a whole bunch of different types of things. So, uh, a co- maybe to kick things off, I actually want to start with this idea of a a little bit of a resurgence in DeFi 1.0. And just to get the caveat out there, this is a not financial advice podcast. We're not necessarily talking token prices here, but we're talking about sort of a shift in momentum and uh, activity that feels very promising over in that side of the ecosystem. And I, so Kane uh, Warwick, who's the founder of Synthetics Protocol, put something out this week, uh, which was a new hope. And he's got, he's, he's a very good writer, actually, in addition to being a, a good benevolent dictator of the DAO. And he he sort of addressed and laid out this multi-chain vision for synthetics, which sort of relies on their shared liquidity layer, which is Infinex. Um, It was an interesting post for a number of reasons. Uh, One, and I thought this was super interesting and pretty encouraging overall for how Kane and the entire ecosystem is thinking, but they actually questioned a bit of a sacred cow, I would say, for the synthetics community, which is only allowing... Uh, staking of SNX and actually allowing ETH collateral onto the platform, which would enable a much easier expansion onto base, which they're sort of viewing as a little bit of a a ring fence test, right? So overall, I thought it was a very compelling vision for how to expand multi-chain. I thought it was really healthy uh, about sort of questioning uh, things that they had held dear. I mean, what did you make of of the entire post? To level set context here, yes, Tane was the founder. Um, and the way that the, the governance structure, at least as far as I understand of synthetics works now is there's a, uh, there's a council of people who make decisions for the protocol. There's a council of people who make decisions for the treasury. Um, there's a grants council and ambassadors council. There's all these councils and the governance model is, um, very much decentralized. Um, and so, uh, maybe an analogy here is like when Kane puts out, uh, an article or, or a think piece on, you know, synthetics itself, it's something akin to like Vitalik putting out something on Ethereum. Um, <clears throat> so th- this is not necessarily like the direction or what will be happening. This is all just kind of one person's ideas and, and one person is really knowledgeable about the protocol and, and everything else that's going on. So, so that's just like context. But <clears throat> I think, you know, the, synth- the synthetics community, especially in, in the Discord, has been talking about a lot of these things and, and frankly debating a lot of these things over the last couple of weeks and months, whether or not to allow um, multi-chain. And that, you know, has always been sort of in, in multi-chain in the sense of, 
where are we going to put these assets? Where are we going to allow this functionality to exist? Are we going to do cross-chain margining? margining? How would we get SNX over? <clears throat> but the fact of the matter is they were also the first one to go multi-chain in that they were the first to have a fully functioning product on Optimism as well as ETH L1. So I don't actually think like <clears throat> moving to base is going to be or having native functionality on base is, is too far afield of what they already have. It's more just a continuation of wanting to um, be the be in the in the venues where people are transacting, where people are you know uh, playing around with DeFi. So I don't think that that's. It, it's funny. Kane had a tweet after he wrote that, and he's like, "Yeah, everybody just loves to latch onto one thing that I write, and one thing, one little component of what I write, and, and focus on that, and you know that becomes the the tagline narrative." I think that was the subtweet at me. By the way, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna own myself here because uh, I tweet, I did exactly that. I literally took a photo and I highlighted because he said at the end we might be building towards an app chain, and I tagged Kane in it. No response. But then the next thing he tweeted was subtweet. <laughs> <laughs> Someone always latches on to a really small thing. I was like, oh shit, that's definitely me. But I was gonna say the the one thing that would be a pretty pretty distinct uh, direction change would be their own app chain. You know what? Why you would need that? What what it be used for? What would be the advantages of having that versus being across base L one optimism, maybe even Arbitrum, etc. Um, I, I think all of that needs to be you know shaped, shaken out a little bit. Um, but you know, expanding into other venues, having native uh, minting and burning of SNX on other L twos is really kind of what they're doing so far. So I, I actually you know read it and thought this is a continuation of a lot of the same. Um, strategy that at least I've, I've kind of assessed by uh, being in the discord and, and watching the conversation. The one, the one that I think is really interesting is what happens when you expand past, you know, other types of collateral. And that that's another kind of sacred cow um, that I think, frankly, in the next couple of months with this, you know, new, newly elected set of councils is, is going to get uh, deliberated and figured out. And um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> to go back to kind of the original point, DeFi 1.0, there's a lot of stuff that's working. There's a lot of stuff, you know, that that definitely still needs to get figured out. But I think you just think about the comparison between DeFi 1.0 and you know, that flash in the pan moment that we used to call DeFi 2.0. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I mean there, there really isn't that much of a comparison. And I think a lot of this stems from, um, you know, we got to know Kane and the synthetics team in, in 2019, um, frankly, just as we were starting framework, but they had just been through the 2017 through 2018 through 2019 bear market. They and the core contributors at that point in time had, had made themselves anti-fragile in so many different ways. And I think, you know, that continuation is what's making you know these DeFi 1.0 protocols you know who have at least the the liquidity, the notoriety, the brand, sort of the momentum, um, live through this bear market and, and continue to thrive. Um, so I, I think that that's one of the other takeaways here is like they're continuing to test things while also you know doing doing very well, um, but also being one of the originals. So I, it's exciting to see. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to. Permissionless. This is the biggest and best conference in all of DeFi. It's the one that we do with Bankless, who's a great partner for us. Last year, we had almost 7,000 people there in West Palm Beach. We are moving this year to Austin, Texas from September 11th through the 13th. And if you are a listener of Bell Curve, any of these last five seasons, this conference is basically custom made for you. We're going to be talking about liquid staking, the theme of this season. We've got a bunch of great panels on MEV. If you listen to the app chain thesis, we've got a bunch of Cosmos folks out there in full force. We're talking about the converging architecture of Solana, the roll-up space in ETH and Cosmos. So I would love to see all of you there. And to reward you for being such great listeners to Bell Curve, you get a special 30% off code. It's Bell Curve 30. That'll get you 30% off tickets. Click the link in the show notes and then head over to the permissionless site and make sure that you get your ticket today. Again, that is bell curve 30. Click the link in the show notes. One of the things that I think, you know, what we broadly call is sort of DeFi 1.0, which was some of the original protocols, which had the, the synthetics, the compounds, the Aves, the Uniswaps, this sort of group. There was not, not to say that new protocols won't come in and flourish, but I think one of the things that separates finance from other sectors is that what really rewards you over a long period of time is being a little bit more actually on the conservative side of things, right? That's not to say don't innovate. That's not to say don't take risks, but 
security is an enormous value proposition when it comes to anything with finance for kind of obvious reasons, right? It's your money. <laughs> you don't want you don't want the people that are sometimes custodying your assets or whatever to, I mean, a lot of DeFi is non-custodial, but you, you get my meaning. And um, it's very easy to blow up in finance, which we saw with a lot of CeFi during this last cycle. And I think the DeFi 1.0 uh, teams, to your point, yeah, a lot of the, when they were just getting started, they had just gone through this horrible washout bear market. And the mentality of a lot of these teams was, you see this with Maker as well, which we're going to talk about during this podcast, maintaining the peg at all costs, right? They were they were laser focused on that one thing that was the most important thing, or maintaining the peg of die, uh, so to speak. So yeah, I think that that is just baked into the DNA of a lot of these teams. Yeah, I mean, I'm even hard pressed right now to think of someone who truly started in 2021 and, and is gaining the same momentum and share as as the DeFi 1.0s um, from from prior years. And just to put some some metrics on on this, I'm about to share my screen here and show a chart from DeFi Llama of synthetics. And I've got a couple of different metrics pulled up. So there's TVL, token price, and fees. And I could show you this chart for a couple of the different uh, DeFi protocols, but um, there, it's it's very interesting, right? The, there's a very similar pattern. So obviously, token price and TVL zoom up and peak around 2021, 2022. Then it's sort of down only. But then there's this very interesting trend starting midway through 2022 and 2023 of fees just skyrocketing, going up. And Kane has been extremely vocal about his idea that what is going to differentiate DeFi protocols moving into the future is sustainable fees. And I think there's a lot of different like words to describe that, but it's basically revenue minus mostly token emissions, right? Because if your revenue is just a for, you know, just exists because you're giving away essentially free tokens in the project, that's not really sustainable revenue. So, you know, you could see this with uh, again, not financial advice. And I it's very unclear at this point how this is even correlated with something like token price, but it is just interesting to see. I think you know, the, the, the discipline of these DeFi 1.0 teams, they're focusing on the thing that they think is going to create value, which is, which is fees uh, over a period of time. And I can pull up a very similar chart for Maker as well. You could do Maker, you could, you could do Uniswap, you could do, you know, so many different uh, application protocols or just protocols themselves where, and I agree with the sentiment that in this next wave, in this next cycle, uh, value accrual is is going to be you know the the make or break it for all these different protocols and that um, in comes in many different ways right uh, you know obviously MakerDAO is doing something very different from Uniswap very different from Aave very different from uh, Synthetics but <clears throat> you know they all have the same sort of benchmarks in that you know they may be you know buying up real world assets versus you know swapping you know spot crypto. Um, but you have to be accruing value in some way, shape, or form. Yep, I agree with that. And just um, I've got the maker chart pulled up here now, and their monthly fees is actually approaching the highs from 2022 or 2021. So quite a feat during an absolutely brutal bear market. La last thing on the the DeFi 1.0 stuff before we move on to uh, before we move on to talk about Maker and Rune's post about potentially uh, adopting the SVM in in state phase five of their end game. One one thing I'd love to get your your thoughts on, like if there are actual operators in the DeFi ecosystem out there listening, how do you think about expanding multi-chain? Because I feel like during 2021, there was this enormous push that, hey, the future is multi-chain. And we saw many of the like DeFi dApps that got built on Ethereum say the future is multi-chain. I'm going to deploy over on you know all of these different chains. And I think you saw pretty mixed results to that uh, because it was an enormous engineering lift to do that. It seemed to actually fragment liquidity in a lot of instances. And I think, you know, there was a phase maybe during 2022 and people said, okay, we are going to actually withdraw deployments across other chains, et cetera. And now you're starting to see maybe a healthy mix, which is, okay, the future is multi-chain, but maybe we're going to pick our battles here and be a little bit more strategic about where we expand. That's what it seems like teams are doing to me, but how would, how do you think about like if from the perspective of a DeFi builder, how should they should be thinking about multi-chain? The visceral reaction is it depends, but but maybe the the like really simple framework to think about it is it comes down to two variables. The first is user growth, and the second is technical capabilities. Where user growth really refers to where are people aggregating right now, and I, I would say you know most of you know DeFi TVL 
is on ETH L1, ETH mainnet. Um, you've got some activity spread across Optimism and Arbitrum, but the TVL, the volume, you know, is it, still not really comparable. Base seems to be moving very rapidly um, in an L2 perspective as to where people, and, and once again, this is just like transaction volume, total value, kind of all the, the top line metrics that you would be tracking. And if you want to expand into those new areas, those new geographies, it's kind of like the same question you would have, you know, if, if you were a traditional company selling, you know, just to the United States versus like, oh, let's expand to Europe because there's customers over there too. Um, so that that's kind of like the first uh, variable. The second is, and we've talked to a number of companies who are working on, you know, more complex applications. We, we've got um, actually a portfolio company who is doing reinsurance and, they're building a protocol where they have to keep some of the information completely private and it's verifiable, you know, by third party auditors if you know question because they're a regulated reinsurance company. And so part of their protocol requires them to be on Avalanche just because of the technical capabilities that Avalanche has. And then there's also components of it that are on, you know, ETH um, and some of the L2s. And so it's kind of like the diaspora of different blockchains based on use cases of what your application requires. And we also have a, a couple of other, um, uh, we have at least one other uh, protocol who, same, same kind of thing, they're doing an interesting new model um, for uh, spot exchange. And that requires a pseudo off-chain, on-chain element. Um, and that order matching just isn't feasible on ETH L1 or L2. So it has to be something that happens, you know, pseudo off-chain via Avalanche but also connected to all of the other chains where the liquidity is via Chainlink CCIP. And so um, it's one of those where I think we're going to start to see, um, uh, we're going to start to see just more infrastructure enable um, the ease of uh, having your application be built by multiple blockchains. And it's not going to be just a ton of smart contracts on the same chain. And when you want to expand it, you have to go build, rebuild all those same contracts on another chain. Like that, this is where cross-chain communication um, technology is going to be really, really important. But then there's just a like, like I said at the start, there's just a question of where people are, um, and that's going to be more of user growth. Yeah, I agree with you as well. W- what about maybe to touch a little bit on, and I don't want to speak for for Kane here and uh, get get dunked on again, but the 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 idea of being an app chain. So obviously, I've been pretty vocal on this, did a whole season on app chains, been a very big fan of the app chain thesis in Cosmos and been excited to see it roll out onto Ethereum. Um, it, it's starting to feel like people it, it feel like I should just launch an app chain without really thinking about whether or not it makes sense for them. And I do wonder if we're going to start to get because, uh, you know, like stack architectures like OP stack or or ZK Sync is making it really easy to do. And then there are RAS providers that are standing on top and making it super easy, like one click easy to do, that we're going to get this, this diaspora of app chains without, without a lot of these builders really thinking about whether or not it makes sense for them. And then I think from my perspective, like if I was OP, uh, the optimism framework, and I was trying to think about my business model, you're, you're kind of what you're doing is some form of bundling, right? Where you're hoping that, hey, I hope the people that build using this architecture and if your optimism opt into my law of chains, I hope that I get valuable apps like Base and FriendTech, right? Uh, and I think what you might end up seeing pretty soon is a whole like a million different app chains that launch and a lot of them that don't make sense. And there might be some sort of reversion action. Say, yeah, maybe actually we could just be sort of an, an, an app and we don't actually need our own app chains for reasons X, Y, and Z. I mean, do, do you also sense that maybe it's starting to become a little bit over overdone or people aren't being as thoughtful about it as they should be? I think when you're going to have things like, uh, you know, Conduit XYZ, I think that's, you know, one of the, the uh, roll up as a service um, applications. It's like one click point shoot to, to start your own L2. Um, Rajiv on our team went through the process and he was like, yeah, it literally took me three minutes. Um, and so when, when that, when you bring it down to that level, I think there's an element that's really kind of exciting, um, because that, that change in infrastructure services kind of reminds me of what it was like when 
you went from you know having to build out your own data center based uh, server to just start your website versus just oh one click shoot five minutes to get a, something running on AWS. And even that was hard because you had to you know often get you know S three instance, EC two instance. You got to you know go and actually build out your server. It's just like you don't have to physically own your server. But then there's all these like Netlify's and these super simple like. Um, uh, there was uh, Heroku back in the day where it was just like, oh, you can you know put whatever HTML page you want together and just run it instantaneously. So I, I think there's an element of like bringing it down a an order uh, or multiple orders of magnitude in terms of cost and time is is something that will have um, really strong effects in terms of innovation and just creativity. The thing that you touched on though is sort of like why <laughs> and. Um, I think what we're starting to get to, and this is the same thing that happened with entrepreneurship and innovation over the last 20 years, is you had these different changes in terms of, okay, how much would it cost you to get going in 2000? It would probably cost you a couple million dollars to get any sort of product out the door, let alone just you know building it and figuring out what the product is. Then in 2010, it, it would probably cost you a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, that would that would be like, you know, pretty sizable expense. But for people who wanted to give it a shot, it, it wouldn't be insane to, you know, raise a million dollars and go off and try to build a product. Then in 2020, it cost you a couple hundred bucks or a couple bucks to get going um, other than time. And so I, I, I'm, I am, it's hard to point and, and say, okay, like this is the direction that we're definitely going. But this is kind of what it reminds me of. Um, so so that, that I think is just inherently valuable. Um, but you know, you you still you still have to take a step back and say, okay, well, just because I put up my ranky tank Net, Netlify app uh, doesn't mean that I can go off and sell a million dollars ARR. Um, I still have to be able to build a business, build a product, and eventually you just like work your way back up the stack where you're like, okay, now I just got to run my own servers because AWS is too expensive. Like it, it ultimately kind of uh, you scale with the infrastructure, and and so I I kind of wonder if we'll see that as well where maybe somebody comes out and says, hey, I'm going to build this application. It's going to be really easy for me to just launch it on base, see if I can build the user base, see if I can find product market fit. Um, then maybe I want to actually you know, run my own L2 once I hit scale. And like, that's maybe the question that Kane is provoking in his, in his new, new post. I think you know one of the questions that I would have is still, you know, does it make sense to, to build your own you know, shared uh, uh, security layer, kind of like the Cosmos model. Um, I think that's kind of an infrastructure question that hasn't been completely answered yet. But um, yeah, all of this to say, uh, I think there are some interesting congruencies between you know how how technology, especially you know web servicing, has changed over the last twenty years with what is going on now um, with chains. What I'm starting to see is a little bit of a uh, spectrum here, and the the two. The two open questions for me in optimism world is, and, and this is what the, the law of chains is doing, right? Which is interoperability. Interoperability is still a little bit of a fuzzy question in, in I think, optimism. Uh, ZK, Sync, and their sort of hyperchain architecture seems like they have more of a more of an idea about it, although a lot of it is probably pretty untested at this point. Uh, so interoperability is this thing which is pretty tough, but I feel like is going to be solved. The other thing is just a, this is an issue that Cosmos dealt with a long time ago. How do you coordinate things like upgrades and standards across these chains, right? Just a really difficult thing to do other than to say, everyone, if you want to be here, it seems like the approach that I don't want to speak for them, that law of chains is taking is if you want to be a part of this law of chains and the benefits that you get from like uh, a shared set of standards is you have to make these upgrades. So you're surrendering a little bit of like sovereignty with your 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 block space and and accepting more homogenous block space. And there's kind of a, a spectrum here of Cosmos, right? Which is you have all the value capture, all the sovereignty you want on your own specific app chain, but you have no distribution, right? You you're kind of just building this island out there in the middle of nowhere, and you like hope that people might come and use your product, but it's limited. Then there's uh, something in the middle, which is like the opt OP stack law of chains, which is, okay, you still have your own app chain, but you've got to conform to this set of standards and you can't be as heterogeneous as you want. And you need to upgrade when the law of chains tells you. And like, you get a little bit more, you get like easy plugins with custodians like Fireblocks, for instance, I keep using that example, but so there's like a little bit of a middle ground. Then actually, I think Solana operate is going to be on this spectrum as well, because what they have decided to do is have generalized block space, but local 
hotspot fee markets. So the problem that we're all trying to solve here is like, how customizable is your block space and how do you deal with fees? Like, how do you have sort of sovereignty over your own economics and fees? And the Solana thing is to say, we're going to make this all extremely performant block space. You can't change things like block times, but don't worry if like someone just like in Ethereum right now, if there's a really hot NFT mint, it affects gas fees across the entire chain. Don't worry, we've got local fee markets so that that won't happen to you. And there's just going to be this like broad spectrum. And I listened to a lot of people. I listened to a great debate with uh, Nick White and Kyle Samani. And and each side right now is battling with this, like, it's going to be this way or it's going to be this way. And it's like, it could be both. <laughs> it could be both. There's 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 just so much room here. I There probably will be a more dominant model, but come on. I mean, I, it just really makes sense. It really depends on what these applications are going to need. What are the dominant applications going to be and what do they need? And we're all just guessing because none of us know. So what I will say is uh, 100% agree with the infrastructure perspective. Um, I think we are 100% in in the like, this is what uh, infrastructure build out looks like prior to application readiness. Yeah. I think we know what the application categories are going to be. They just aren't here yet. Yeah, you might be right about that. So how would you how would you stack rank? DeFi is going to be more along the security vector um, yep. with uh, cost not being as important. Um, games is going to be literally the opposite. Well, maybe maybe games will be in the middle, and then sort of like consumer crypto, maybe the friend text of the world will be on the opposite end of DeFi, where it's ease of use, onboarding, abstraction of blockchain elements un- un- until users want it. But cost is going to be, you know, one of the variables that people really care about, um, you know, for a chat application, like being able to mint, you know, something I posted um, and being able to have ownership over my like handle is stuff that I really care about. But I don't care about that as much as like the ETH or the, you know, assets that I have in DeFi, making sure that they're secure. Um, so I I think, you know, it, it, it will depend on the application category. Um but to your point, the best part is we're going to have the infrastructure to support it all. I agree with that. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out, man. And I think those lines also are going to blur a little bit as we as we go forward. And a good example of that, maybe to, to transition this into our next story, is uh, so Rune posted that, and, and I, w- I want to just caveat that this is not a done deal. This is similarly to Kane, right? This is a DAO and there's a lot of governance infrastructure in place. So just because Rune posted this doesn't mean it's going to happen. But he posted about uh, the title of this this post on the, the MakerDAO forum is Explore a Fork of the Solana Code Base for New Chain. So the fifth and final phase of Endgame is the complete re-implementation of the entire Maker, Maker protocol built natively on a new standalone blockchain codename New Chain. So in case you forgot about the five phases of the Endgame, Phase one is the beta launch. And this is pretty interesting. It was actually just interesting going back and, and reading this. But the idea is that right now there are two different brands within Maker. There's the Maker brand and then there's the Die brand. So this would be an attempt to make one brand uh, instead of having two separate brands. Uh, then the second phase of the end game is the SubDAO launch. So these are sort of like decentralized and specialized divisions within MakerDAO that can run parallel. And I think part of the idea here is to isolate some of the risk from kind of the core protocol itself uh, to be efficient. The the only thing I'd add, um, uh, Lucas, uh, and I, I'm uh, forgetting his last name, had actually a really good talk on this. It was like a 30-minute talk. Um, and, and that was kind of the one where it clicked for me, the understanding of the relationship between the sub-DAOs and Maker Core. It's really think of Maker Core as sort of the the, the central you know entity that is helping to facilitate all of this. And sub DAOs are competitive in nature with other sub DAOs, but they're the the front line of defense of innovation and risk taking. So if you want to go off and, and try a new real world asset concept, you want to go off and um, you know do something like Spark, which is a, a fork of Aave V three. Those types of things would happen not in the core itself, but they would happen at the edges, which would be the sub DAOs. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And the, each of these subdas will have tokens as well, by the way, for what it's worth. Um, phase three, governance AI tools launch. So that's basically, there's a lot of governance actual mechanisms and infrastructure that help power Maker. So this would be sort of an integration of AI to make that more efficient and putting some of those AI mechanisms on chain. The phase four is the governance uh, governance participation incentive launch. And phase five is the new chain launch and the final end game state. 
So NewChain will be a blockchain that houses all backend logic for SubDAO tokenomics and MakerDAO governance security. That means that on Ethereum, NewStable, and NewGov token, as well as DAI and Maker, will continue to function as normal. And the only change will be that they'll be protected by a governance backend that operates through a secure state-of-the-art bridge using a two-stage bridge design. So Rune also said that this is basically... This is the final state. Once this is launched, it's immutable and it's going to be in place forever. And um, and what they're they're what they're looking at essentially is uh, a, a new code base uh, for what this would be. And and they're exploring a fork of the Solana code base. They're also exploring a, uh, a being a Cosmos app chain as well. Um, and the reasons that he gave are there are a lot of properties of Solana's code base and the SVM that make it very performant and optimized. And uh, and also, he, he's really interested in eliminating some of the technical debt that has gotten built up over the course of the last year. So yeah, Michael, what do you, what do you, what do you make of this? Endgame in and of itself, as you just highlighted or, or ran through, is a gargantuan undertaking. Um, yes. It is a huge undertaking that involves uh you know changes to probably one of the best or some of the best known you know assets DeFi 1.0 um protocols in the space right now a total rewrite of the governance module you know and i think he kind of gets um a bad rep for for even suggesting the ai integration really ai is just going to be a tool for taking all of this complex um governance structure and, and breaking it down into what is effectively like human readable uh, and reasonable um, information. Um, So ultimately my take, especially on, on stages three and five, which I think are pretty intrinsically related. um, And that is, you know, integration of the AI tooling plus the governance module being built on a new chain. Um, I, I think the biggest point here is kind of what we were talking about earlier with applications that require functionality to exist on other chains just based on technical uh, requirements. And I would imagine that, you know, obviously running the current governance model on ETH L1 um, is limiting, costly, and probably like overbearing just based off of, you know, the tech debt that you referenced. Um, So starting fresh makes a ton of sense. I also think like Rune, you know, in in a similar way, and I don't know him super well, but um, I, I think that he is just trying to, test different ideas and you know poke at sacred cows to see if there's anything yeah. that makes more sense and and that i think is the right thing to be doing um you know it, it wasn't him saying this is what we're doing this is where we're going i'm building this right now it's it's more just like hey we gotta start thinking about phase five and there are some pretty interesting concepts that exist outside of everything that we know um so maybe we should take a step back and I think he also kind of, you know, sort of walked it back, but not not totally in that he just said, hey, look, Cosmos could be great. Solana could be yeah. great. Like we should be exploring all of these things. Um, so ultimately, I, I, I think, you know, the, the ETH Massies are, are obviously going to be questioning the uh, uh, the perspective, but um, ultimately it'll be good for Maker because you will have tested all of the different concepts and, and found the one that works the best. Um, so, but I, I'm... Definitely excited to see how all this all this plays out. I think um, big risk and, and big opportunity uh, coincide. Um, so it's going to be, yeah, just I, I think this will this will move DeFi forward in a lot of ways. Yeah, me as well. And it for me, it's it's interesting to hear him. I, I didn't really make the connection about why SVM or why the Solana code base and the AI sort of connection. That was helpful. That was good insight from you. I, I was I was originally sort of like, well, why does it have to be Solana? I, just looking at MakerDAO's business model, I'm kind of like, why does it need to be super performant? But I do I do think there, there are just these converging architectures and these different blockchains. So Ethereum and Cosmos and Solana, they started from very different points and things that they were optimizing for. And there's a bit of a sequencing where like there's really visible overlap right now between the cosmos and ethereum roadmaps right like this app chain stuff it started in cosmos and ethereum said hey this actually makes a lot of sense and rollups are a good way to not compromise on things like hardware requirements for validators in the main chain so that'll still be very slow and secure but a lot of the computation and execution will go on up here in these rollups so and similarly i think what's going to happen with solana is even at the roll-up layer, there's still going to be these these costs in the form of DA, right? The proto-dank sharding is a good first step. Uh, eventually, we'll get data availability sampling. But even then, um, I think what's going to end up happening is that 
applications are going to say, hey, we've no, we really need something that's super low latency, right? And extremely performant. And Solana's going to be like, hey, guys, like I've, I've spent the last you know, three years actually thinking through exactly how to solve that problem. And we've engineered our, our virtual machine to deal with this by incorporating things like local fee markets and parallelization. And I don't know. I, it's, I think we're still a little ways out that from this, and maybe we'll never fully solve the tribalism thing. I keep waffling back and forth. But I do think there will be smart, pragmatic people from each ecosystem that will say, all right, this is a problem set I'm going to have to eventually deal with. What have you guys done? And there'll be cool, interesting combinations. I think you said it a little while ago, but I, I think convergence is going to be the thing that happens. Maybe not in terms of the tribalism, but definitely in terms of the concepts and philosophies um, that each of these ecosystems starts to represent. Yeah. I agree. So kudos to, again, just to, you know, maybe bookend this, this doesn't mean that this is going to happen. It just means that they're looking at it. It also means, I mean, Cosmos, he, the, the exact quote was that Solana is the most promising code base, but Cosmos is the other main contender. So, you know, none of this is said and done. And Sam Hart actually wrote up a really great uh, post. We can link in the show notes about why Cosmos would make sense for this. Sam's a great, I, you've ever bumped into him. He's a great, uh, Cosmos guy. So highly recommend you take a look and read it. Exactly. Yeah. And just to also book in that this is also just a, uh, a concept of, you know, potentially forking the code base. Um, this is, you know, it, it's so, it, there's so many different questions as to how the technology will actually work out um, as opposed to, oh, we're going to move over into one of these ecosystems because um, those are two very different things. Oh yeah, this was the last. This thank you for bringing that up. So obviously, sort of a win for Solana, but it's not. You know, Maker's not talking about launching on Solana. They're talking about forking the actual code base. And they, so, I mean, what do you make of that in terms of value accrual here? And does this? I, I, I that's a very open question for me. And it, what it made me think of is, um, so all uh, L ones like Avalanche are EVM compatible, right? Yep. Obviously, a lot of the value accrues to Avalanche, but also it's sort of beneficial for Ethereum because it lends credibility to uh, network effects at the execution layer. And some of that kind of flows back into ETH a little bit, but it's hard. You know what I mean? So these are just really unanswered questions. I, I don't know what you made of the decision to fork the code base and how much that directly benefits Solana versus more indirect benefits. But that was an open question for me. I just don't even know how to think about that. Honestly, I don't think anybody really knows yet. Um, and and if there is any value accrual back to you know Solana itself, I, I don't know. Um, oh yeah, the proof will be in the pudding. I, it, it's sort of the uh, expanding the philosophical perspective of EVM versus SVM. I think is the the advantage here or, or the value that you would ascribe to it. Um, and that's just nebulous to uh, you know it's it's not tangible. Yep, I agree with that. Um, so next story, this is actually, uh, an, a win for a Solana. It's been kind of a big week for a Solana. Um, so Visa stablecoin settlement is expanding to Solana. So basically now, uh, and by the way, I think I got to put my hand up here a second time and eat crow, uh, cause a couple of uh, weeks ago we, we had, we had a debate about payments being big and I was like, nah, I'm not really sold on it. It was very, very, uh, I think I'm getting ready to be proven wrong about that. So Visa can now send USDC denominated payouts to WorldPay and Nuve through Visa's Circle account. So basically, it's it's kind of exactly what you were describing, actually, is that there are a lot of hops in traditional systems, which are, you know, just over the years, for some for good reasons, some for rent-seeking reasons. There are just many different intermediaries when it comes to aggregating, collecting, uh, and executing global payments. And ultimately, blockchains do provide a better way. One of the one of the requirements of of payment networks are uh, very low cost, right? It has to be low cost for for a really small payment. You can't be charging ETH gas fees. So, looks like Visa has chosen to expand onto Solana here. Pretty big win for the ecosystem. I and mean, what do you make of this news? I, so, I think it's maybe helpful just to go back real fast and and kind of describe who like the players are. Um, so, Visa. Everybody thinks of Visa as being a payments company. Visa is not a payments company. Visa is a data company. And what they do is they create standards and networks and basically rule sets that if you are a participant in one of these ecosystems in the Visa network, you have to pay a small fee. It's actually very, very small. People talk about the you know three and a half to four and a half percent that these card networks charge. The bulk of that actually goes to the issuing bank um, because they're the ones who are taking on the customer risk and the and the chargeback risk. 
Um, and, and this is all on credit card payments. Um, you know, debit is a slightly different model, um, but let's just stick with credit cards for now. Um, and Visa takes a very, very small percentage of that. And that's really just to know that all the different counterparties that you're going to be interfacing with are talking the same talk and basically like have the same data standards, but also have the same rule sets being applied to them that you would expect of all other counterparties. Um, so, so that's Visa's playing in this. And, and WorldPay is, you know, one of the largest um, payments companies. Um, and the, yeah, they're, they're, they're huge. It's kind of like a, a chase payment tech or, um, you know, people may have heard of like Braintree, which is owned by PayPal. Like th- these are all sort of like payments companies. Um, Stripe is in certain ways similar. Um, and really kind of the, the other core component here is, well, there's two. There's an issuing bank and there's a merchant bank. An issuing bank is effectively when you go to a bank um, and you want to sign up for a credit card. They assess your creditworthiness. They assess sort of your your history with the bank. Um, and then they are the ones who are issuing you the line of credit that you can use to charge against. The merchant bank, which is the receiving side when you go to make a purchase, is the the, the bank that is taking on the merchant risk of you go to the store and swipe your credit card or, or use Apple Pay, whatever, making sure that, you know, the merchant itself is not uh, making fraudulent charges and all of, all of the things you would expect. When you have your credit card stolen and somebody goes off and uh, charges $1,000 to it, um, the chargeback actually is something that's assessed by the issuing bank. And it's sort of like an insurance process where like the issuing bank says, Hey, merchant bank, did you guys actually charge this? And the merchant bank goes, yeah, here's the receipt. Here's the signature, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it wasn't our fault. We did, we had no idea that this person wasn't actually the person who owns the card or, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a process, but um, the chargeback would come out of the issuing banks side in most cases. Um, and that, um, you know, that's the reason why they take the bulk of, of whatever percent is the interchange. Um, really simple way of describing it. The, the interesting part here is when you're using a blockchain, um, and, you know, in, in the elements of uh, so much of that payment stack, that charge, that three and a half percent, let's call it, is really what happens when someone makes a charge and says, I didn't actually do that. And it's over a network that is reversible. Well, what happens when you have an element of irreversibility? One of two things, person-to-person payments um, and point-of-sale transactions, it's going to get really interesting to see how chargebacks get processed. I didn't actually send you 100 bucks. I didn't actually pay that. Um, is it going to be the same process? Well, how does the irreversibility of USDC actually work? And are, are there sort of like accounts that get charged and, and debited to? Um, but I think, you know, one of the one of the nice parts about this is I think it's going to ultimately involving in, involving a blockchain with USDC is ultimately going to reduce so much of that interchange fee because you're going to have more security in the chargeback process itself. Um, so I, I, very early days for the payment side of USDC and integrating a blockchain into into that. Um, but just think about it from like a data standards and security perspective. I think ultimately this is going to be what banks want because of, you know, the protections that they'll get by incorporating a blockchain into this payment transaction process. Um, so long-winded, you know, <laughs> explanation of, of the payment stack. Um, and uh, yeah, but it, I think ultimately this is going to be really, really interesting. And that three and a half percent is, uh, you know, something that be maybe up for grabs. Yeah. Okay, so this is I really like the way that you described that. So on the one hand, right, if we just just took a look from a very high level at the amount of intermediaries that are involved, some of them are necessary, some of them probably less so, especially when it comes to cross-border international payments. And in general, getting rid less fewer intermediaries means fewer people need to make margin, it'll generally be cheaper. But this dynamic I think is is really the key one to understand because it's sort of about who bears risk. Um and what what could be interesting? Tell me tell me if I interpreted this correctly. But right now, uh, you you pay relative like payments are relatively high, but that's because of who bears the risk, which in this case is primarily the issuing bank. So that also is a good experience for you as a consumer, right? Because if you complain to your credit card company, they're going to reverse payments on your behalf. In a blockchain in a blockchain world, 
then that could that dynamic could actually be reversed because of the settlement properties of a blockchain. Banks actually might like that. They might charge less, but they have to bear less risk. And then the question is going to be for you as the consumer, what does escrow services and chargeback end up looking like? And that is the question. Um, so I guess we'll have to see how that ultimately ends up playing out. But I do got to give props to both Solana and also to Visa. Visa, man. Visa is... They, I keep using them as the example of the go-to, you know, used to see all these proof of concept things from Bank of America back in 2017 that made no sense and you knew it was just a PR thing. They're experimenting with account abstraction on Ethereum. They're acting as a paymaster in 4337, which is cutting edge stuff for Ethereum. They are launching, they're leaning in and looking at payments on Solana. I mean, so cool, man. Very props to the Visa team. They're crushing it. Props to them. I would also say, think about their business model and what is potentially at risk if they get disintermediated by a blockchain, where yeah. if they're the data standard and and you have you know Circle creating USDC, you've got you know Ethereum creating the standards and the safeguards of transferring properties, it, and smart contracts are basically setting the rule sets in the same way that Visa is setting them for, for all counterparties involved in these transactions. I mean, in a way, it's almost existential for them uh, not to be participating in this way. Really good point. All right. We've got a couple more stories here that I want to make sure that we get to. So one, let's talk about, um, actually, I I want to ask you about the socket investment that you guys made uh, because, so I saw you co-led that investment and that Coinbase. Um, uh, But they, Socket, honestly, is a company that I had heard of, but I don't like know a lot about what they do. I know the tagline is sort of enhancing communication between blockchains, their interop thing. But what exactly does Socket do? And what is the, you know, as much as you can share, I saw Vance tweeted something out, but what's sort of the, in, in like, I guess the investment thesis, but more broadly, how you see interop playing out and who benefits in an interop sort of world? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to um, a lot of the same theses that we were just talking about, which is, you know, when you have an application that requires multiple blockchains, um, or let's let's say uh, you don't have the interop capabilities, therefore you can't have an application that requires multiple blockchains or multiple, you know, execution environments to function the full-fledged application. So these interop protocols become the necessary component to enable that. And I know Chainlink has CCIP, you've got, you know, layer zero, you've got, um, you know, all, all these different examples of, you know, interop protocols. And um, I mean, there's so many more, um, but, you know, what we really got excited about with Socket and, and, you know, they're a great team. They're really smart. They're moving super fast. Um, it is also the, the ability to partner with Coinbase and have, um, you know, that be the preferred um, layer for Coinbase. Um, and yeah, it 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 um, is something that you know we see as an important. It, it's a necessary component in the infrastructure stack. Is it going to be the only you know interop protocol? Absolutely not. Um, is it you know going to be you know the 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 thing that people choose for certain categories in certain situations? Absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean we've been talking about it. Maybe just haven't identified it specifically, but interop is the thing that enables so much of what we've been talking about with the infrastructure stack. How does not necessarily, you know, reveal nothing that you can't with socket, but in general for any of these interop uh, protocols, so maybe layer zero or whatever, what's the monetization? How, how do these companies monetize? So I, I know Chainlink and layer zero have come out or at least proposed different models of um, depending on what you're doing and how you're moving information or value. Um, I, I think those two protocols themselves um, have a, a small fee that's associated with it. Um, I think there's questions as to, you know, how do you pay the fee? What is the fee? How do you calculate it? Uh, like, but think of these as network services and, um, you know, there, there will be, you know, yeah, fees associated with it. Cool. That makes sense. Last two stories. So there was a, a little bit of a setback uh, in just in terms of regulation. And this actually comes on the the CFTC side of things. So for those, in, I'm sure many people listening to this podcast probably had a little bit of a mental framework that the SEC, definitely under the administration of Gary Gensler, but even previous, Jay Clayton. By the way, how funny is it to remember that when we had Jay Clayton, it was like, we got to get this guy out of here. Thank God we've got Gary Gensler coming in, someone who knows blockchains. Man, that wasn't exactly correct, was it? But the SEC has always been, has come down a little bit more harshly on on crypto. 
Uh, the CFTC has broadly, which is in charge of regulating commodities and derivatives and, and things of that nature, has always had a little bit more of a, a, a benign or open-minded attitude towards regulating crypto. And frankly, a lot of the lack of clarity in the US, I've always thought of as jockeying in between many different regulatory bodies, but certainly the CFTC and CB, SEC, they're sort of staking out territory for who gets to regulate what in this new ecosystem. Can you just give this story? What was it again? It was like an enforcement action or something like that against three three different DeFi protocols. Um, so it, it was more than that. It was a settlement um, mm-hmm. against three DeFi protocols. Um, and you know the I, I can't remember exactly the settlements were in the you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and really, kind of, I, I think what. Um, the main rub was, and I, you know, I'm obviously not a lawyer. I have, you know, been piecing together the information via Twitter and actual lawyers on Twitter, um, as well as, um, you know, people that we know that we talk to. So <clears throat> maybe this is not completely 100% correct, but close. Um, the, the main rub was that the protocols and the interfaces, uh, sorry, the interfaces and the protocols that were created by these companies, and it was three different companies that were in a uh, part of the settlement, um, <clears throat> the, they failed to do proper KYC AML uh, procedures for accessing uh, these protocols. And um, I think there's a couple of things that are interesting. So CFTC is in charge of the, um, the regulation of... Um, futures products as it relates to commodities. If you assume crypto products are at least in in part commodities, basically what a futures product would involve is not the regulation of spot markets. So if you want to trade one ETH for one ETH or or one ETH for USDC, that's that's one thing. Um, If you want to trade levered ETH uh, or if you want to trade, you know, other types of levered products or futures products related to ETH, that is something that would pretty clearly fall within the CFTC uh, regula- regulatory envelope. Um, and so I think that's, you know, kind of where where they went. Uh, and so I think it was open Derivadex, which are actually two, you know, leverage trading uh, um, protocols, and then 0x as well. I think actually what becomes interesting is 0x is not actually a, anything other than a spot exchange. But just because the protocol itself enabled trading of products that were levered, that's where you know it fell within the the confines of of the CFTC. Um, so th- there's a lot of really interesting nuance here. One thing I think you know from a, a more meta point is um, this feels like a ping pong battle with multiple players on each side, where you've got. The regulators and they're trying to lob, uh, lob different shots over. You've got the courts that are going through the process, and this very clearly kind of runs counter to the perspective of the Uniswap dismissal that was a couple of weeks ago, where the judge in that very clearly said, you know, the creators of these protocols are not liable for the actions of um, you know uh, people using the protocols. Um, this. Uh, this could be uh, misconstrued to be part of that or, or, or not. It depends on kind of the layer because once again, the, these were settlements with the companies. And I think most of the companies were actually operating um, UIs to access the protocols. So there isn't a different element here um, or maybe like a different layer that people are talking about. Um, so I, I think, you know, once again, this pushes the need for regulatory clarity. Like there, this ping pong game, can go on for a really long time, I would imagine, but it just creates more and more confusion as to, you know, who, who is in the right, who is in the wrong, how do we build, how do we do this? Uh, you know, the, the big loser here, I would say, is um, US-based DeFi, where it, it is so abundantly clear that for the time being, it's, it's just completely, it's very clear that it is totally unclear as to how to operate US-DeFi um, in the US. And, and I think until we have that clarity, and that will probably have to come from an act of Congress, um, we we won't know how to continue forward. Um, so I, I think that's kind of like the, the biggest takeaway that I have from all of this. Yeah, it's definitely a little disheartening if you're on the crypto side of it and all you want is some amount of clarity. And it's like I'm getting different, I'm getting mixed signals for within the same regulatory body? How am I supposed to have a clear path? And you and I have talked about how the developers and the entrepreneurs that are building these products, 
need to have surety that they're not going to go to prison for making these products. And I, I agree with you. I think the, the other thing that I'll say though, is a, similarly to the, the SEC, right? Like the courts are the ultimate decider here. Jake Travinsky had a great, great quote on this. So uh, again, the legal system has been knock on wood, pretty good so far. Makes you really thankful for checks and balances. I actually had a history teacher who in like seventh grade, who, who was a big fan of John Marshall. Have you ever heard of that judge in the US? Yeah, John Marshall. We should do a little a little history segment on old John Marshall and how he, how he how he wielded the power of the justice system. But yeah, it's it's look. There's a reason why we have checks and balances. The judicial system is is pretty good over here. Property rights are strong, and I don't know. I I still have faith that this is going to play out the right way. So if you're if you're building something DeFi out there and you're living in the U.S., keep the faith. Keep the faith. I, I totally agree. Um, it's definitely not over. I think, um, you know, just just reading the tea leaves and seeing kind of the, the winds that are playing out um, in the court system, it's going to take time. Um, but I, I think the, we will be on the right side of regulatory history. Ultimately, it's just, um, you know, fraught with confusion and, and shades of gray for the for the time being. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I'm not sure how much really there is to dig into here. But there is a ARK Invest and 21 shares announced that they are pursuing an ETH spot ETF. So this was probably always inevitable after the Bitcoin spot ETF uh, picked up some amount of traction. I actually did see from an, eh, it's just an account I follow. I don't know. But I saw I saw yesterday uh, a thicky thought of Scimitar Capital posted, <laughs> just for, I know, uh, posted posted something about how there was a sort of an idiosyncratic bid for Bitcoin yesterday. GBTC shares were trading up 5%. You know, maybe this is someone front run, someone who knows something and is front-running news uh, at the same time that ETH was down. Not a typical move. But anyway, for whatever, whatever it is, you know, all the, the analysts at Bloomberg's, Alex, Alex or Eric uh, Balkunas and James Seyfart have picked up and are, are very bullish on a Bitcoin spot ETF being approved. And now you've got uh, Arc and Twenty One shares piling in and, and filing for an ETH ETF. And to be honest, I haven't really dug into it and don't know the intricacies or the the probability of ETH getting approved over Bitcoin. It certainly looks like we're getting an ETH futures ETF. But hey, at least at least we're, this is step number one, right? So there was a Bloomberg art, what you just referenced. There was a Bloomberg article that said, according to sources, um, or maybe even according to multiple sources, the SEC is open to a futures based. ETH ETF. Um, I, I personally haven't seen that substantiated anywhere else. I hope, obviously, that that is the case because that you know signals a, a number of different things. Obviously, the the creation of that ETF, I think, um, would be an important step. But also, um, it probably would provide clarity as to the SEC's perspective on ETH, the asset. Um, so we'll be definitely watching that. But uh, I hope I, I, yeah, uh, we'll see if that actually is, you know, real. Um, but, you know, if we, if we take it a step further and say, okay, um, Bitcoin spot is not a question of if now it's more of a question of when, then futures ETH um, would pretend to, you know, assume that ETH spot would be, you know, at some point later down the road. The, the one um, clarification though is I, I think. Um, the filing that ARC put out is technically an S1. And I, I don't know the nuances of all of this, but I did see someone who kind of explained the nuances. This is an S1, which doesn't have the similar timelines of what you would get with, I think it's called like a 19B4 filing or, or something along those lines, which is all of the existing ETH, uh, or sorry, um, uh, ETF um, applications that are in the, in the process. So there is no timeline for this. And I think Van Eck actually filed a, an ETH um, S1 sometime in like March or April. So uh, more people around the table, I think is a good thing. Um, this doesn't mean that we're now on a timeline of like January or March to decide the ETH uh, spot ETF, but um, ultimately positive that I think people are starting to recognize that these financial products are going to become live, um, you know, most likely in the next 12 months. Um, and uh, that'll be, it'll be exciting to see that play out. Yeah, I'm in a complete agreement with you there. I think obviously these things take time and never assume that it's going to happen tomorrow. The Bitcoin ETF definitely seems, I look, I have no special information. I just read the same thing everyone else reads, but it does look like, uh, and I think the final, the final deadline, as we talked about on, on last shows, 
it's just very interesting that it's all lining up around the same time as the having and uh, potential rate cuts. So we're, we'll have to see if that ends up playing out. But, you know, let, let's just remind ourselves here. Maybe this is transitioning into the last. We're deep into a bear market here. I mean, we are. This is this is as deep as she goes, really. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's talking to people who've been around for multiple cycles, you know, everyone's kind of like, okay, this is how it goes. And I've sort of been here before, but there are definitely a lot of people on their first cycle that are struggling right now. And you can see it actually on Twitter. I mean, Jesus, people are tearing each other apart on Twitter over really benign, silly things. Right. And whenever I see someone tear someone apart online, I'm like, you must be going through something, my man. I, I, I hope it's all good. You know, <laughs> don't worry. It'll be okay. <laughs> Blink twice if you need help. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I don't know. How are your mental? How, how do you like, you know, what, what are you sort of feeling at the, at the current time? I, I, so I, I think we've talked about this um, or you've mentioned it before. We've definitely talked about this before, but um, Toby's tweet way back when of the way to survive cycles yeah. is to, get really excited or dig into something during this period of time. Frankly, um, you know, what that was for at least uh, Vance and myself in, in 2018, 29, well, 2017, 2018 in particular, um, is we were building Hashleads, which was, you know, an NFT platform for professional athletes prior to us starting Framework. Um, it was really easy to put your head down and work on a startup. I, I think, um, you know, just personally, it's harder to have, uh, you know, your eyes uh, on a, or your head on a swivel and trying to assess the market constantly during a bear market this cycle. Um, but I think, you know, the, the nice part is it, it's, it's good to have a recognition of where we are in the cycle and have that feeling to know that it will ultimately turn and like there will be things that change. And weeks like this make me feel like, oh, well, it could actually be next week where things start to look up because. You know, to your point, I, bearish timeline is is an understatement, um, <laughs> or, or maybe just quiet timeline, which you know most people re- relate to being bearish. I think it's also sort of just people decided to take some time off this summer and <clears throat> go touch some grass, go out do something, and um, I, I think September and October um, we'll we'll start to see some of the you know, initiatives that were talked about or, you know, uh, lined up for launch for the fall, those will start to happen. I'm actually really excited. I think by the end of the year, January, we're going to actually have some fun to play games full, you know, global availability. Um, so like that's, that's going to be a fun thing to at least, you know, test out and, and play. Um, I think we're going to see some of the stuff move on, you know, like we talked about DeFi 1.0, um, hitting, hitting new strides and some of the launches that they'll have around those protocols. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm always excited to be surprised on something like a friend tech because personally I didn't see that one coming. Um, but I, I think, uh, there'll, there'll be new shots on goal on that respect as well. And, um, so yeah, I mean, all that's to say, like things are definitely not, you know, fun right now, but, I think this is also the time when you, you build the calluses and the, and the muscle memory to know how to operate during this time. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are, these are the, I I'm very, very excited about the future. Ultimately. Um, it's just, you know, being able to stay engaged and excited and, um, yeah, know that, know that we're on, on the right path. A hundred percent. I've actually never been more interested purely. I know it's like a meme in the tech than I am right now. It's actually much easier to discern during this period of time than when everything's working. Because when everything working, there's going to be a new narrative every week, and you actually get this sort of exhaust. Uh, and I, I've, I don't know about you, but I've found that the the issues in bull versus bear markets mirror each other a little bit, or, or, or sort of inverses of each other rather. And right now, what you're what you're dealing with if you're slogging through a bear market is a lot of stuff isn't working, right? If you're the operator of a company, your revenues are probably down. You know, we just checked in with a company, you know, it used to be sort of a darling of last cycle. And it's like, hey, I haven't heard in a while. Revenue's down 80%. Like half the people got fired. I mean, this is the same story everywhere, right? So if you're going through that, just know you're not alone. Uh, but the, the the upside of that is that you, by by sheer necessity, you have had to take a very hard look at your business. You've had to take a very hard look at what makes sense. You've had to isolate and pick which problems you want to solve. 
And if you do that, if you go through that really tough, like shiatsu massage process successfully, you will emerge stronger for it. On on the other side, when when the market does come back and turn around, at least when crypto is as cyclical as it is today, the opposite problem will happen. Everything will work. Everything will be all good. It'll move really fast. Hiring will be your biggest problem. None of the salaries will make sense. And you sort of get this like weird delirium. It's like you're punch drunk or something like that. You're, you know, you're not, you know, the world isn't exactly as you're seeing it, perceiving it, but you're getting all these weird signals and they're just sort of inverse problems of one another. And, you know, we talked about last, last week that crypto is a cyclical industry. It's going to continue to be a cyclical industry. The people that make it in cyclical industries actually are really disciplined. It's people that have like a good sense of not building into something that makes no sense keeping a level head, leaving some growth on the table, being conservative with your finances. That shit doesn't seem like it plays out on even a even like a two-year time frame, but I think it does over a 10 or 20-year time frame. That's how I appreciate oh, and, it. And, you know, we talk about uh, how how fast are crypto years to relative years, and, and maybe the, yeah. uh, the 10, 12-year business cycle is actually the three, four-year uh, crypto cycle. And I, I, I go back to it every once in a while and just think about who are the great, you know, people who have stayed their ground. And it's really easy, I think, mostly to point to investors as to, you know, how they have performed over long duration. You know, you've got the, the Stan Druckenmillers of the world, you've got the Warren Buffetts of the world, and, you know, even like the Jeff Dunlocks of the world who have been, you know, uh, working all in different markets and in different ways, but <clears throat> have outstanding successful records throughout all of those business cycles throughout their entire careers and to your point exactly i think you know it, these are inverse problems you're going to have to know you know when things are so bearish that it's going to be time to either you know you're going to know to cut you're going to know how to react you're going to know how to motivate at the lows and then it's going to be the opposite at the highs um it, it just is uh it's harder to recognize the highs, I think, than it is the lows because you think they're, the highs are going to keep on getting higher. Um, and the people who survive this cycle are going to understand a lot better how to recognize the highs and how to operate more efficiently more efficiently at the highs. Um, so know that that's awaiting all those who, who make it. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, partner. Well, maybe this is a good place to end it. And uh, I will see you very soon in person, live permissionless, man. It's going to be a blast. And fingers crossed we get our like a full roundup together in, in person. Dude, that'd be so much fun. That'd be a blast, man. I can't wait. Can't wait. All right, man. I'll see you soon.